0: It's 1922, and a young Irish woman is traveling to Spain for the first time. Kate O'Brien, who will later become an internationally acclaimed novelist, playwright, and journalist, has been engaged to work as a governess for a wealthy family living near Bilbao. This experience will one day inspire the writing of a novel. And in this program, 100 years after it is set, we're reading that book. We're reading Mary Lavelle. Kate O'Brien was born into a large middle-class family in Limerick in 1897, and her mother died when she was just five. Geraldine Meaney is a professor in the School of English, Drama and Film at UCD, and a long-time fan of O'Brien's writing. We met up in a Dublin park, and I asked her to tell me, first of all, about the author's early life.
1: She was effectively brought up within the convent, within Laurel Hill, where her aunts were nuns uh, and teachers. Um, She remembers that with great affection in in her later work uh, and in uh, a memoir called Presentation Parlour. But it was an odd and strange upbringing for a little girl. And I think she had to fall back on her own resources quite a lot. So she's obviously precocious, she's obviously clever, um, she reads an awful lot, everything I think that would have been available to her. And she wins a scholarship at a young age, 16, to go to UCD to study modern languages. So even at that age she'd already developed an interest in European literature and languages. And
0: when did you yourself first discover Kate O'Brien's writing?
1: I discovered her writing by accident. She was not on the curriculum when I was an undergraduate student in UCD, which was 1979, in the dark ages. I started one day rambling around the shelves. Uh, I came across what I think must have been one of the very first reissues of The anteroom Room from Virago Press. And sat down, started reading it and thought, why haven't I heard of this woman? Why is she not on the curriculum? So I then read my way through her work uh, and developed really a lifelong interest. Uh, She's an extraordinary writer. And the first couple of pages of any of the novels would have done that, I think, to anybody curious enough. And I think I was already questioning where the Irish women writers were on our curriculum.
0: Mary Lavelle was published in 1936. How established was
1: Kate as a writer at this point? She was quite successful. She had had a play staged, which is not an insignificant achievement. She'd worked as a journalist for a while for the Manchester Guardian, now the Guardian. She had written Without My Cloak, which was very well received, her first novel, uh, which is very much a family saga, closely related to her own family and to Limerick. Um, Mary Lavelle is an interesting departure for Kate O'Brien. She sets it in 1922. So Mary herself, her heroine, is unaware of all of the things that are going to happen in Spain between 1922 and 1936. But she's coming out of an Ireland which has gone through the War of Independence and the Civil War. And there's specific reference to the involvement of her brother in those conflicts. I think Kate O'Brien had this huge sense that what Ireland and Spain shared was a lost opportunity In the 1920s and 1930s to become very different kinds of places and countries, new and much more open republics. So Mary is a miss, uh, we're told at the very start. She crosses the border into Spain with her little trunk and her modest few possessions, two frocks, only two frocks. And there is this sense that she's taking a year out of her life. To go to be a governess in Spain, learn a language, get a bit of experience before she marries and settles down. And that was quite typical. Um, The novel's probably exaggerating when it says that all the English governesses in Spain are actually Irish. But in fact, quite a lot of them were. They fitted more easily into Catholic families and there were connections, usually around religious orders, between Irish girls and Spanish families in need of governesses. There was a well-established pattern. Here is Mary one week after
0: saying goodbye to her fiancé John and her hometown of Mellick, O'Brien's fictionalised limerick. We find her enjoying an afternoon off from her job as a governess,
2: or so-called miss. If she had planned a thousand years, could she have found a more thorough shelter than in this curiously obliterating occupation? She smiled now, thinking that after all, one cannot be obliterated but only hidden, disguised, and that it was pleasantly surprising to be Mary Lavelle, all clues and certainties thereto deep-sealed within, and yet to sit unknown, unneeded, in the leafy square of a Spanish town. She anticipated no wild adventure. She wanted none. This was, to her simplicity, wild adventure.
0: This simplicity is, of course, short-lived. Tina O'Toole is a senior lecturer in English at the University of Limerick and first read Kate O'Brien in the 90s, eventually writing a thesis on her work. We met on a sunny day in Cork and started by discussing the different ways that O'Brien makes use of the particular time period in which she sets the story of Mary Lavelle.
3: I think there's a lot going on in this novel. I think it, it doesn't offer itself up very quickly to the reader. So, you might begin by thinking this is a it's a domestic drama, it's a family romance, it's a you know it's popular literature, which of course it is all of those things as well. But I do think um, O'Brien knew the political landscape in Ireland very well, and even very early in the novel, various hints are given of the kind of political provenance of the novel that we're about to read. So quite soon we learn that the central protagonist, Mary Lavelle, had been a messenger. Um, so like the common Naman women during the War of Independence, that her brother had been, much to the chagrin of his father, a member of the IRA, had been involved in the armed insurrection, and that Mary had, like so many Irish women in that period, been um, a supporting cast member in that national drama. So when she came then to kind of enlarge on the story of Mary Lavelle, Kate O'Brien threads that through. So we get that very early radical history or back history, if you like, of her protagonist woven through the narrative.
0: And how would you describe Mary's attitude to her Catholicism in the
3: book? Um... Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's very clear one of the very first letters in the book is to a nun, is to this mentor figure, Mother Liguria, who has set up the place for her in Spain. So it's very clear that her socialisation is a Catholic socialisation, just as Kate O'Brien's own was. So when Mary encounters anarchism or atheism in the novel, she doesn't really know what to do with that because she has absolutely no experience of of anything other than middle-class Irish Catholicism in that period.
0: Far from the constraints of home, Mary settles very well into Spanish life, becoming open to new ideas and to new people. But she does suffer one bout of acute homesickness. We join Mary now, feeling a little tired from the demands of her role as a Miss, returning from a day out with her three young female charges, and unaware that she is only moments away from her first meeting with Juanito their older, married brother.
2: She got into the ferry and sat down. The children were a little separated from her by the crowd and smiled in her direction. An old woman edged the corner of a basket of live hens onto her knees. The boat chugged off. Conversation was animated among its serried passengers. Mary closed her eyes resentfully. She supposed she was homesick, So unaccountably heavy was her heart. She felt alien, dejected, out of tune. Almost as if she had been injured by this innocent place, as if it sought to wound her. She thought of Malik, and of how lovely it would be to hear voices that she understood. It might be raining now at home. She could hear the rain on sycamore leaves, could see a pale, watery break in the sky beyond the river. Aunt Sissy at the drawing-room window, catching the last light to read the Melick Sentinel. Mourn Street, wet and empty. A benediction bell, a motor horn, an eager step like John's along the flags. Images to connote a terrifying peace, a timelessness and changelessness most desolating in their personal call to her.
0: Gerardine, why was the novel
1: banned in Ireland? Oh, because of the affair. Because of the affair. I mean, Kate O'Brien kept falling foul of the censors. Initially, I think, and for quite a while, she tried to manoeuvre around them. But I think um, once your name was on the list, it was very difficult to get off of it. I mean, infamously... The Land of Spices, which is set in a girls' convent school, was banned because of one sentence which refers to the Reverend Mother's father and his relationship with a younger man. So there was no way that a novel about a young woman initiating an affair, and she does initiate it, she kisses him first. So this idea of active female sexuality, the idea that that's romanticised, and it is beautifully romanticised, and yet there's a realism in O'Brien... But also she gets away with it. I mean, I'm fascinated with the censor's decisions. If you look in depth at some of the stuff that they did let get through, uh, if the young woman ends up pregnant and dead in a ditch, which is, case and say, one of Mary Lavin's stories, then they don't ban it. If she ends up with money and resources and a new language and a new confidence and a new future, that is completely unacceptable. And here's Tina on why the novel was
0: considered by some to be so controversial.
3: The novel's deeply controversial in all sorts of ways, but I think most importantly it suggests very strongly um, critical thinking. Um, and I think critical thinking is at the centre of this book. I mean, there are obviously there are questions asked about sexuality, about gender, about the family as institution. Um, but I think ultimately it's about um, thinking for yourself. Is is really the the deepest root of the trouble with this novel in terms of the censor?
4: I object to censorship. It's as simple as that. I I, I think it's a foolish imposition. I mean, the people have always had the the ordinary censorships of decent society that prevail, and there's religion and conscience and the law, and it seems to me if we can't manage with those uh, weapons to protect ourselves from what we object to or what we believe to be evil, it's ridiculous for a set of laymen to turn around and say that they know better than all the rest of the laymen what's to be read or what's to be listened to or what's to be done.
0: Kate O'Brien herself speaking on RTE Radio in 1966. So how is female sexuality dealt with in the novel? And let's remember that Mary Lavelle was published in 1936.
3: Her changing attitude to her fiancé back home in Ireland as the novel unfolds talks of the erotic it talks of intimate lives it talks of the domestic future that she's likely to have back home but from the outset O'Brien again a little bit like planting the seed of the the bicycle messenger early on she does this with the barren fig tree in the family home in Mellick so when Mary is considering her decision to go to Spain for a year. It's just to be a short trip between being a a miss um, and a married woman. She looks outside her window in Malek and she sees the barren fig tree in the garden. And her first thought is, I can pick figs from a live tree in Spain. And, you know, it's maybe a little obvious... But I think that symbolism is there from the very beginning of the idea of the, the kind of barrenness of this married life that she's going into. It's clear she doesn't have any passion in the relationship that she has with John. He he is passionate, he is in love with her, he's devoted to her and she feels a dutiful Response to all of that, but no more. She finds kissing him uncomfortable. She wonders what all of this passion that people talk about is all about. She doesn't really get it, we might say. And obviously, later on, then as she as she begins an adulterous affair with Juanito, that completely changes because she suddenly gets swept away by the passion of that relationship. The Agatha Conlon figure um, also is a key. Um, discussion, I think, in the novel, in which O'Brien really, for the first time, very openly begins to think about same-sex relationships and to think about, you know, what today we would call non-heteronormative relationships uh, in the novel, which in 1936, in an Irish family drama, is is very radical. It's a radical thing to do. And even though Agatha Connell never forges any kind of a lasting relationship in the novel, it's very clear that she identifies as lesbian or Maybe not, not to use that term, but today we would certainly use that term. And that she has what she sees as a crush on the figure of Mary Lavelle. And that's all dealt with just as part of the social and sexual economy of the book, um, without anybody apparently batting an eyelid. But needless to say, uh, censors uh, tend to bat more than eyelids at these kinds of things.
2: Are you shocked? I like you the way a man would, you see. I never can see you without... without wanting to touch you. I could look at your face forever. Every time O'Toole calls you Alana, I want to murder her. It's a sin to feel like that. Oh, everything's a sin, said Mary.
0: Here's Geraldine.
1: I think her treatment of sexuality is really bold for the period. She is interested in a young woman, not just falling in love, but a young woman actually discovering her own sexuality. Mary has two potential lovers within the the novel. One is Winito, who is the classic uh, sort of son of the house that you get in every governess novel, or many governess novels going back to the 19th century, the complication being, of course, that he's married. And the other is Agatha Condon, um, who is very clear that she has fallen in love with Mary also. And Mary's response to that is not horror at Agatha. And the novel really tackles head on this kind of idea that love of any kind is something that you should be ashamed of. And I, I think that sense of freedom and a relationship between art and freedom and sexuality, is really strong in the novel. The description of art um, uncontained and lawless, that that sense of something lawless which follows its own logic, is for O'Brien, I think, at the heart of both art and sexuality.
0: And something else at the heart of the novel is Spain itself.
4: Well, I first went to a job in Spain when I was a girl, just out of the university. I lived for nearly a year in the north of Spain, teaching English to a boy and girl. A very simple job. I loved that. I was very happy. And that's what started me off on Spain. I knew nothing about Spain before I went there. Then after that, I was very much interested. And later on, then I had, those days I had to earn my living and I had to stay put. But then it got that I was writing novels, earning my living that way, and could move around with my work. I took to going back to Spain a great deal for months at a time and I got very much attached and very much interested in Spain and so it comes that I've written a good deal about Spain, nearly as much about Spain as about Ireland. They're the two countries I've been concerned with in my work.
0: Ken Bergen, you're Head of Special Collections and Archives here at the Glucksman Library in the University of Limerick and you've uh, picked out a selection of items from the archive for us to have a look at today, so... What's the first thing you want to show me?
5: Well, I think the first thing we should look at is the first edition of the actual book itself, Mary Lavelle, published by Heinemann in 1936. So what we have here is the first edition, first imprint of the book. So the cover itself is a brown cover. It has gold embossing. and has Mary Lavelle, a Kate O'Brien on the upper cover and the dust jacket as well in a separate area of the library currently actually on display at the moment. And this is what the actual novel looks like and what would have been received by people in 1936. Um, It's a copy available to students. We like the students to see what it was like for the author when they first produced their book, to see exactly as they did in 1936.
0: Fantastic, thank you. And I see here as well you have what looks like a programme from a bullfight in Madrid.
5: That's right. Um, Kate was a frequent visitor to Spain. Uh, The first time she goes out to Spain is in 1922 as a governess. And she loved the country, she loved the people and its culture, and it definitely influenced her work. And what we have here is an example of a programme from a bullfight from 1967. Now, Kate got into some trouble when she wrote her non-fiction work, Farewell Spain. It's seen as a criticism of Franco's government, and she experienced real difficulty for more than 20 years then in returning to her beloved Spain. But here we have an example here of a a program of a bullfight that she attended in Madrid in 1967.
0: And of course, for readers of Mary Lavelle, the bullfight scene is a pivotal moment in the novel.
5: I think Kate also refers to it her other correspondence as well in mentioning about bullfights, about um, the sport, if you can call it sport, but we have to be aware of the time. It's, it's different to our own in terms of uh, how people perceive animal rights. But the spectacle, of course, appealed to her, and it's important then how it's revealed then in the novel. I, I think when you look at the protagonist, and then we you compare her with Kate O'Brien herself, so leaving Limerick in 1922, going to Spain, the excitement, the culture, the country... Um, the environment, in fact, the freedom that she had then as well. Now, we know Kate, you know, had travelled. She had been to the United States with her brother-in-law and sister in the early 20s, where she's now in Spain. She's on her own. She's experiencing life as a young woman, completely without family, friends, influence, and was free to experience um, all that Spain offered.
0: And a letter that you have here in the archive is from the son of the family that she stayed with and worked with.
5: So what we have here is a letter um, from him in 26th of May 1952 and he says This year I went to London for a short trip and found at last the famous Mary Lavelle which I was looking for since years ago. You can imagine with what a tremendous anxiety I went through that pages and the vivid scenes of life in Casa Pilar, Acabantes, Cabante's Altorno. The book is really fascinating and for me it was still more because a whole world which slept to my memories for years woke up and dreamt again as in the golden times of adolescence. Thank you, Miss Katie, for bringing to life that dear shadows of my youth.
0: The teenage boy that Kate taught is making contact with her years later.
5: Kate's connection with Spain was so important to her and it was a source of, you know, upset to her that she couldn't return in those years. And here we have the son of the family that she was governess to in 1922, such a happy time for her, such an influential time. And I think she had such um, fond memories that it, it meant a lot to her to have the son write to her in 1952.
0: Obviously today we focused on material that relates to the author's love of Spain, but would you describe the archive that you hold here as extensive?
5: Yes, it's the most extensive collection of Kate O'Brien material in the country. Um, There is a small collection in the National Library. Some of her manuscripts are in North America in the Evanston Library in Illinois, but we have the largest collection of her personal correspondence.
0: And to what extent, Ken, do you view Kate O'Brien as a specifically limerick writer?
5: Well, we, we claim Kate as a limerick writer. She was born here, she grew up here, she was schooled here. But we think Kate is more an international writer, in the more in the European tradition. And that's reflected, I think, in her, her love of travel, um, her membership of pen, her writing from all parts of the world, her engagement with European writers, European culture, her love of French, her love of Spain. And, and we think that's reflected in her writing and her correspondence.
0: As we've heard, O'Brien wrote about Spain many times throughout her career. In Mary Lavelle, the bullfight episode is key. And for Tina, it's another opportunity for our heroine to decide for herself how she wishes to behave.
3: Well, the corrida scene is the centre of the novel. And as an artistic moment, it's a really important one, I think, because it's a key moment that much of the early part of the novel builds up to. There are a lot of conversations and exchanges about the bullfight long before the bullfight itself actually happens. And again... It's an important step for Mary as she steps outside of her identity as a young Irish respectable miss. None of her cohort will attend the bullfight. They think it's ridiculous, it's disgusting. These are some of the words they use. It's too much a part of Spanish culture for them ever to see themselves as part of or to assimilate to. And so when Mary agrees with Agatha Conlon to attend the bullfight, this is a big step for her. She's breaching another taboo.
2: The trumpet sounded again. The bull was standing alone in wariness at the barrier. The sun was full upon him and made highlights on the streams of blood along his flank. The ribboned darts hung awkwardly. He drooped his head a little, but though baffled, was full of life. He knew his own wild strength and liked the touch of the sun.
3: Action in that moment really slows down and You know, O'Brien pulls down all of her aesthetic, all of her writerly tools into the writing of that scene. It's a hugely important scene, both in its horror, in the destruction of the animals at the centre of it, in the glamour and the heroism of the bullfighters. And in some ways, most importantly, in the bringing together of the whole community, young and old, to watch this spectacle, to participate. And, of course, many literary scholars have read it as, you know, symbolic of the entering of Spain, um, Mary's opening up to Spain, but also paralleling it with sexuality and of course when the novel opens we know one of the first things that we learn about Mary is that she has a virginal heart that she is a virgin and so the whole conversation about sexuality and the erotic is brought together in the bullfight for the first time long before uh, she has an affair or anything else happens.
2: Mary stood among the shouting Spaniards not knowing whether she shouted to or not, had she been searching for means to describe her state of emotion then, she could have found no covering term. Nor could she indeed, in many sentences, have accomplished any record of her immediate self. But that was not troubling her, yet. She was, perhaps this is the easiest phrase, outside herself.
0: Gerardine, the novel is set in the Basque region of northern Spain and Mary works for a family living just outside Al Torno, which is a fictionalised Bilbao. How
1: important an aspect of the book is this Basque setting? There's been really interesting work done on this by um, the late Basque critic Antena Legareta, who wrote a wonderful book about Kate O'Brien's relationship with the Basque region, which centres on, on Mary Lavelle. There's an incredible reading in that of the bullfight scene in the context of Picasso's Guernica. Uh, and It was actually from Guernica, uh, so she's a really interesting angle. Putting Kate O'Brien into the Spanish context that she experienced when she herself worked as a governess but also examining the political context of the novel itself. There's a point where Mary hears the names Arthur Griffith and Porrick Pierce through the oration, she says, of a Basque nationalist. Um, and she doesn't understand any Basque, but she knows those two names. And it's the moment where you can see the Irish War of Independence and the Irish Civil War And the connection between that and what's going to happen in Spain. Our attention's been drawn to it by O'Brien, but it's so subtle. Um, You know, another writer would have spent paragraphs labouring that, but it's literally an overheard sentence. And I think the, the Basque territory, the source of the wealth... In Al Torno, which is is Bilbao, in those mines that are there, they're referenced repeatedly in the first few chapters, they're out there in the mountains, but you see none of that labour. There is a sense of a kind of subdued violence there in the background of something being taken away, of grievances that are bubbling under, of lives that are lived very differently to the lives of plenty that Mary comes in contact with within the novel. Um, I think O'Brien's a very subtle writer. She sketches a lot in with a couple of sentences. So you get that sense of Bilbao as a place, an industrial centre, but also a political centre and a cultural centre. And the particular instance of Bilbao and the Basque conflict is not something I think she wants to focus on. The novel is concerned with Spain as an entity, but I think she knows that her experience of the Basque Country has coloured her idea of Spain.
4: Ah, oh, well, of course, one goes out of fashion and... Uh... My kind of book isn't as much liked as it used to be, but that's inevitable. All writers have to go through that. And I don't think my rather quiet, uh, analytical, young Catholic ladies' love affairs are of great interest to the, to the vast majority of the world now. But they're still read, I believe, and I, my publishers still have great faith in me, and I... I do my best, but I'm a bit out of fashion and that doesn't surprise me at all.
0: Kate O'Brien, speaking in 1966. I wondered what a reader new to O'Brien's work might make of Mary Lavelle today. The book club of the Society of Young Publishers in Ireland read the novel last year and its book club officer, Elizabeth Goldrick, had never heard of Kate O'Brien before the novel was chosen. I began by asking her what she thought of our heroine, Mary.
6: It's interesting because first we're introduced to misses generally, like through this idea of their luggage and that they all have these same things. And then we meet Mary through these letters she writes. And then finally, like we step into Mary, and she is, or at least trying to fulfill the Mary who writes these letters. But she's so much more than that. She's very passionate. She's very enthusiastic about things. Uh, She's an interested learner of language and culture. She is also, I think, very kind and open. So even her father broke with her brother for his activities, but Mary continued to support him. And when Conlon later tells her something about herself, she's not shocked. She, She accepts people. She seems so innocent, but she knows things are not so clear-cut. Um, I found, and this came up a lot in our book club, we were like, did she have to be so beautiful? But we argued that she didn't need to be and she could still have been this huge heroine. Um, but Mary seems almost dismissive of her beauty. She knows she's beautiful, but she doesn't She doesn't seem to value it in any particular way. Um, so she's quite a modern heroine, I think.
0: Did you get a strong sense of what life was like back in Ireland for young women like Mary at the time that the novel is set?
6: I think so, and it seemed very regimented and duty-filled. And it is even interesting that it's... Mary only gets this job through a nun, so there's this kind of idea of the church. So, yeah, you have an idea of what's waiting for her and the kind of inevitable... I think that also, um, and I have myself, and that was part of the reason why I really liked the book, I used to teach English in Spain. It was just so different to what I had experienced and yet, essentially, I had the same thing, like this delight in eating so late, um, the music, the heat, the language.
0: You're surprised that the book was published in 1936, which is almost nine decades ago. Why does this surprise you?
6: I think it's because the, the things that Mary feels or that excite her or that worry her would continue to press on a young woman today. Um, so like the family that she describes is very interesting. She has this quite difficult father. She has brothers that she's worried about and but yet can't really talk about it. Uh, there's economic problems and uh, of course the love. But there is this great idea of almost like a female support society and like they're there together as Irish single women in Spain. The missus, for example, they'll never let someone else pay for them when they go for tea because that, you know, they'd be in someone's debt, which is a kind of pride. And also being kind to one another, they know they don't have much money and um, Mary knows that she will have to go home to have, I suppose, a proper life. Uh, She will need to be supported by her husband and also this dowry she has. Uh, And then the other misses they can never leave Spain. They talk about one of the misses had to leave. She was fired from her job and just how awful this situation can end up. Did you find any aspects of the book humorous? I did. And even there's... Almost like fun between the letters she does and doesn't write to John. Um, but the scenes in the classroom or with the girls are very funny. And I think Kate O'Brien really captures the relationship between the three sisters. And the misses are all very funny. Sometimes their humour is dark, but they, they want to have a good time. And when they meet up, it is their time off. So, yeah, I did laugh reading it.
0: So finally, Elizabeth, what is your lasting impression of the novel?
6: Definitely, this moment in time aspect and this this adventure in Spain, and in a way, it's a holiday read. Um, but Mary, Mary stays with me.
2: Will no one tell me whom she's married? Asked Mary. A newspaper seller that she used to buy cigarettes from. Pepe, you mean to tell me she's married Pepe? Is that his name? All I know is he sits outside his emporium in shirt sleeves every evening, said Kyo. How she could, Miss Kennedy shuddered. It's marvellous, said Mary. That nice man Pepe. But of course we're all fools. It's, oh, It's been obvious all the summer that he adores her. Oh, I think it's awfully nice. Are you in your right mind? Kyo inquired. What's up with you all? said Mary. Are you jealous or what? Jealous? Oh, jealous? They screamed the word. If it gets round the colony, said Kyo uneasily. And it certainly will, said Miss Kennedy. We're looked down on quite enough as it is, said Hearty, who had no tact. They all glared at her. Who looks down on us? Kyo inquired. Still, this is a fearful thing for a miss to have done, said Miss Burke.
0: One of the things that happens when you make a program called reading Mary Lavelle is that you reread Mary Lavelle, and when I did, I was surprised to see how few scenes actually feature the misses, given the impact that they have on the reader. Kate O'Brien brings this community of Irish and English women abroad to life, and part of her success in doing so could be down to what Tina describes as their raucousness.
3: I mean, it's basically barroom culture, but in a tea shop. And so their gossiping and the interactions between them, um, their petty snobberies, um, the kinds of ways they will and won't drink tea, the the aspects of Spanish culture they refuse and see as beneath them, which, you know, (laughs) leave a lot to be desired. All of those scenes, I think, they're in there for partly for comic effect. Um, It also kind of, I think, gives us a little bit of an insight, maybe, perhaps, to Kate O'Brien herself. I mean, she was nearly 40 at the point that she's writing the novel so her own experience as a governess in Spain would have been quite some years before this but you know she did go to Spain as a miss herself and so all of that encountering of this raucous the raucous behaviour of these adult women when they're let loose uh, in their own company for a young bourgeois girl from Limerick might have shocked and appalled her a little at the time but she clearly entered into it pretty quickly as well you know
0: It's clear that if Kate O'Brien hadn't travelled to Spain a century ago, we wouldn't have the novel Mary Lavelle. But is it also possible that if she hadn't made that trip, we wouldn't have any of her writing at all?
4: When I was working in Spain in a job I took teaching in Spain after I I left university, I had lots of time to myself in the evenings there in this big lonely house above the sea, and I took to trying my hand at short stories. and I remember I wrote the first act of a play. Uh, I, but I tore all those things up. I burnt them before I left Spain. But I think I got the idea then that I, would, that I should go on and have a go. And I did.
0: Kate O'Brien's grand-niece is the actor Cathy Rose O'Brien. Hers is the voice that has been reading to us from Mary Lavelle throughout the programme. In 2019... Kathy Rose curated the inaugural exhibition at Molly in Dublin, which was entitled Kate O'Brien, Arrow to the Heart. I asked her how connected she feels as a fellow female Irish artist to her great-aunt, who died in 1974.
2: So in preparation for the exhibition at the Museum of Literature Ireland, I read through all of Kate's work and what I could see looking through the archives in the University of Limerick and, and all her writing all her novels was this very strong focus on on a woman's search for independence a woman's search for her own identity her own fulfilment and this really resonated with me and I thought was very progressive and feminist and very relevant for today the articles span her lifetime they're from she starts writing in her 20s in, in the UK for The Standard and for The London Chronicle or The Daily Chronicle and variety of newspapers in the UK and gosh those articles are so um, human humane, they're they're rich they talk about interior lives even then and that interest in, in people, in their expression in their wants and desires in how we are about uh, the environment about the planet around us about our interpersonal relationships she writes those in, in her articles up until her 70s when she had a column in, in the Irish Times long distance which Douglas Gageby gave her towards the end of her life and as I read those articles which were much more digestible and, and short and snappy I could hear her voice I could hear her voice through the ages um and I, I met the woman at different points in her life and that was this incredible privilege and then as I read the books suddenly I, her voice was was strengthened and I read it in a in a, an even fresher way and I suppose when I came to Mary Lavelle and I read um she has a, a section where she talks about being a little girl on the windowsill dreaming of being free and and having her own independent life and her desire to be tied to nothing to to travel to see to have adventures I had been reading her articles and and looking at her whole life um, unfold in front of me in in the archives and and in her biography and I thought oh my gosh uh, she's writing herself and so suddenly there was this time travel this amazing sort of split screen moment or I don't know I was you know teleported to uh, to meeting her face to face and now suddenly I'm reading this novel uh, set in Spain, in the heat of Spain and the bullfight and, and away as a governess meeting other Irish governesses and she's there presented to me right in front of me and that was pretty thrilling, <laughs> pretty exciting, so there felt like a big connection there and I suppose on a more personal level as, a, as an artist she had found a way to express what was going on in her in her head, and how she saw the world, and how she saw um, saw as potentially uh, limited, or or searching for our freedom, our self expression, and that as an actor, that's what I'm trying to do all the time is trying to communicate stories, express myself, express what's happening at the moment around us, make people feel connected, not so alone. And this book, my gosh, um, is absolutely about exploding the idea that we're all off having these perfect little lives she she, she, you know she she spends the novel questioning and adventuring and and doubting herself and trying new things and that's what we're all doing that's what i'm doing
0: mary Lavelle took center stage at kathy rose's exhibition at molly i asked her what she found so inspiring about this novel in particular
2: Mary Lavelle is very um, rich in imagery. She has a wonderful skill for describing the landscape in Spain. At one point she's on a train and, you know, you see the fields, you feel the heat, Uh, you hear the seaside, the men down with the boats, the children, the the passion of the tango or or the dances that are going on in the square. Our heroine, Mary Lavelle, she goes off on an adventure that she thinks will just be for a short period of time. But, of course, once she goes away, she's open to discovering who she is, what turns her on, what gives her joy and pleasure. And that just all felt really exciting and kind of revolutionary, to be honest.
0: Kind of revolutionary, indeed, for so many reasons, as we have heard from our different readers. A strikingly modern novel set 100 years ago and essentially, I think, a story of independence, particularly female independence. Here's Geraldine on Mary Lavelle's potential appeal for a contemporary
1: reader, picking it up for the first time today. It is about breaking free from certainty and embracing that adulthood is about having to move, having to invent yourself in different ways. So I, I think for a 21st century reader, there is that universal experience, but there's also beautiful descriptions of places and times If people read nothing else, read the description of the dancing, the dancing in the squares in Spain at night. And, I mean, you can literally feel the heat and hear the music. It's quite extraordinary. She's a really excellent descriptive writer. She would be all right in an hour or so
2: if she forgot about herself. She hurried through the narrowing streets and came out into the Plaza San Martín, Where the bandstand seemed about to burst with noise and light, and where under the clipped, close tented plane trees, workboys in overalls danced very gravely and beautifully with their red mouthed girls. She paused here. She loved the Plata San Martin. She stood very still under a plane tree on the corner. She had stood here before to watch this lovely dancing. Nowhere, she believed, could everyday dancing be made to seem so noble as by the common people of Spain. Often standing there, she'd wondered what it would be like to be one of them, to dance to that raucous music, over the uneven earth, in and out of the shadowing trees. Young men had asked her often to be their partner, but she, under two traditions, that of a young lady of Melek and of a miss, had always had to refuse. But her refusals had been taken as friendly and shyly as she tendered them. She had sometimes wondered likely what John would say if she had to confess to him that she had taken to dancing with over men in the slum squares of Al Torno. Tonight she did not think of John. She leant against the tree and looked at the figures moving in beauty through the violent depths of light. She knew the tune they were dancing to, I met my love in Avalon. And so I think Avalon.
0: Juanito finds her there, and they dance. They keep on dancing, until the music stops, and together
2: they walk out of the square. He stood and looked at her as if that was all that there was left to do in life. She drank his look for a wild second and gave him all that there might be in hers. Then she ran up a narrow street as if the ground burnt her.